Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to another episode of Murderous Minors Killer Kids. This episode is brought to you by the State of Logic Podcast. Murderous Miners Killer Kids Season 2 Episode Number 14 Double the Overkill Part 1 The Samuel Twins Identical twins are often said to be wired the same, though they have different traits, personalities, and interests. Many sets of identical twins remain intensely connected long after they no longer share a living space. Feeling like they know each other's thoughts to literally completing each other's sentences, many remain connected. By all accounts, the Samuel twins were not reared in the most stable of households. 1964 Grand Rapids, Michigan found Michael and David Samuel born into a turbulent environment with numerous siblings ahead of them and parents who rarely and barely got along. Anthony and Grace Samuel's issues did not provide a traditional or even remotely healthy household, and the boys learned quickly to rely on one another for safety and comfort. Alcoholism and domestic abuse were reported in the home, and by the age of 10, the twins were considered pranksters and bullies by those who encountered them. When most youngsters would have been playing baseball or riding their bikes, the Samuel twins were shoplifting, breaking, and entering. By the mid-1970s, Michael Samuel was by far the more disturbed, violent brother and was usually the ringleader and instigator of their growing list of crimes and misdemeanors. He had already been identified for swiping bullets from a local shop. A 12-year-old girl went on to be shot in the neck with a BB gun, courtesy of Michael Samuel. The boys grew up tightly wound, becoming sullen teens looking for booze and money to feed their growing drug addictions. Although their personalities weren't the same, their identical appearances led to them being treated like they were one person. They were tall and lanky, with stringy dark hair long enough to hide their faces. Many in the area did not associate with them given their violent streaks and tendencies toward trouble. By the time they are 16, Michael and David have become hardcore partiers, often finding themselves out on the streets of Grand Rapids under the influence of drugs and alcohol, ready to find a thrill. They often gravitated towards the local billiards hall, the Golden Eight Ball, owned then by Ken Knoll. Michael's propensity toward violence, coupled with his love of throwing an ass-beating, culminate in his assault of a friend, whom he accused of stealing, resulting in a sentence of juvenile probation. 
The twins frequent the Golden 8 Ball religiously, becoming friends with employee Bobby Sellin, an 18-year-old who not only works there, but resides there as well. In October 1981, the twins are now 17, and Michael had started devising a plan to scrounge up some fast cash. David entered the room one night, catching the tail end of a conversation between his brother and their friend Patrick. The plan loosely outlined a robbery of their pool hall and their friend Bobby. Patrick points out that there is no chance that Bobby would allow himself or the pool hall to be robbed, alluding to the fact that it would be over Bobby's dead body. David protests, letting them know he doesn't want any part of robbing the Golden Eight. Michael assures them that he isn't really going to do it, but it seems evident that his intent has been fixed upon the idea of murder. The next visit to the billiards room began innocently at first. The boys showed up well after midnight and mingled with friends. They were drunk and stoned, but this was nothing unusual for them. Once Bobby had closed the establishment down for the night, the three friends head to his basement bedroom to play some after-hours poker. For the previous two years or so, Bobby had worked for Ken Knoll and was now the night manager, having the authority to lock down the money and close up shop. Ken Knoll allowed Bobby to stay down in the basement since he was mostly on his own at this point, but still quite young. It was in his basement apartment that the 18-year-old Robert Sellin was brutally attacked by the 17-year-old Samuel twins, whom he considered to be his friends. The murder was a brutal one, made even more tragic by the fact that the robbery netted the twins only $50. For $50, these teenage brothers not only strangled Bobby with a pair of nunchucks, they also struck him multiple times with a metal rod. They then alternated shooting him with a bow and arrow, finally ending his life with several catastrophic hammer blows to the skull. He was left unrecognizable. Robert Sellin's young life was cut short in a horrendous fashion for practically no other reason than to get some cash. The following morning, David Samuel went to their friend Patrick, upset and needing to talk. Around this time, Bobby's body had been found and the twins were immediately under suspicion. They were clearly the last two people known to have seen him alive. Michael is brought in for questioning first and was relaxed, cooperative, and calm. He says they left at 2 a.m. and that Bobby was most certainly alive when they left for the night. But once David spoke to investigators, it became clear that these two likely knew more than they were admitting. Once the twins' friends are questioned, it doesn't take long for investigators to catch up to one pal in particular. You know Patrick, the one with the story about a conversation involving murder, plus the strange visit after Bobby had been killed. Within days following Bobby Sellin's murder, both Samuel twins are arrested. They are kept separate, but Michael was able to get a secret note out to David. However, it didn't make it to him successfully. The letter told David to let his lawyer know all the details. It seemed that Michael wanted to convince his twin that he didn't need to go down for crimes he didn't specifically commit. It was never clarified as to which twin perpetrated what crime against the defenseless, outnumbered Bobby Sellin, but the secret letter made it clear that Michael felt more responsible for what happened. Michael felt strongly enough that he held more fault for the crime that he risked disciplinary action to urge his twin to put the blame where it rightly lay. Michael felt strongly enough that he held more fault for the crime 
that he risked disciplinary action to urge his twin to put the blame where it rightly lay, although it may have bode worse for Michael himself. In 1982, at 18 years old, Michael Samuel plea bargained to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 35 to 55 years in prison. He was paroled in 2009, getting out early for good behavior, and was last known to be a transient around the Grand Rapids area. David Samuel, however, opted for a trial, wanting to plead his case in front of a jury. However, he was given a non-jury trial. Once Kent County Circuit Court Judge Stuart Hoffius was done hearing testimony, he immediately sentenced David to life without parole. Two widely differing sentences considering both teens admitted to participating in Bobby's murder. When you consider that the sentence should reflect the extent to which each individually took part, it is even more perplexing an outcome. Michael admittedly played a heavier role and was seen as the more violent of the pair. Choosing to plead the case that he was less innocent than his twin backfired tremendously, as there was no jury to persuade and the judge simply would not be swayed. As has been covered here in past episodes, the United States Supreme Court ruled juvenile life without parole sentences unconstitutional in 2012, triggering retroactive resentencings around the country. David Samuel was still incarcerated and this ruling applied to him. In 2015, he was the first of nine inmates in Michigan to be resentenced. In 2015, he was the first of nine inmates in Michigan to be resentenced. Now, instead of mandatory life imprisonment, teen killers face a minimum 25 to 40 years with a maximum term of 60 years. Would it surprise you to know that there is one member of Bobby Sellin's family who befriended the twins and even supported their release? Well, at the time of his murder, Bobby Sellin had twin half-sisters who were 15 years old. When David Samuel was being held in the county jail following his arrest, 15-year-old Tammy Smith, a twin herself, hurled threats and verbal abuse at one of the twins who took her brother's life. She wanted him to know that her family was now in pieces. The Smith twins then tried to live their lives for the next 20 years. In 2001, they realized that Michael Samuel was going to get out, and the prospect of his release within the decade sparked questions within Bobby's younger sisters. They wondered what the Samuel twins were like then, as middle-aged men having reached maturity while incarcerated. Tammy took a leap and wrote Michael a letter. Quickly, they became pen pals, and she slowly began to see him as more than just a killer. David wrote, too, and over time, the three began to speak on a regular basis. She started to feel like further incarceration served no purpose here and took it upon herself to make her opinion clear to those who may care what she thought. She was at Michael Samuel's parole board hearing and spoke in favor of David's release at his resentencing hearing. I want him to do what is right and for the rest of his life really look back on this and and appreciate all the support that he's had and to not make this mistake twice. The judge acknowledged that her statement had a positive effect on his decision. I think perhaps Mr. Samuel 
has been confined long enough given the totality of circumstances. The judge sentenced Samuel to 34 and a half years, making him immediately eligible for parole. Those familiar with the case say there is no reason that he should not see release as soon as the board meets again. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, the State of Logic podcast, to hear real talk about real topics. The State of Logic podcast is like no other. We don't have the same focus as so many other podcasts where we're just me talking about business or politics or whatever. We talk about everything with everyone, intellectuals, comedians, and celebrities alike. Sometimes it's a 20-minute interview. Sometimes it's a three-hour interview. But at the end of the day, it's a great conversation that we often laugh about and learn something from at the same time. Come check us out at the State of Logic podcast. Murderous Miners Killer Kids Season 2 Episode 14 Double the Overkill Part 2 The Whitehead Twins One baby is most certainly a blessing, but I consider identical twins a mini-miracle of biology. Twins Tasmaya and Jasmaya Whitehead were adored by their mother Nikki, who just wanted them to grow up living a different kind of childhood than hers. Jarmeka Nikki Whitehead was born while her mother was incarcerated on drug possession charges. Linda Whitehead had previously been in trouble with the law for robbery and prostitution. According to a friend, her mother Linda didn't want to raise her or take any responsibility for Nikki's upbringing. Nikki was reared almost exclusively by Grandma Della Frazier, who described Nikki as a bit of a rolling stone. Teenage Nikki ran free and even lived on the streets for a bit as a teen. She then had her own apartment at a young age rather than be subject to rules and expectations. When she was 18, she became pregnant with identical twin daughters, born November 27, 1993. Her daughters were fathered by a married man who already had an established family. He did not want to be a part of their lives and was a felon who was deported to Canada by the time the girls were in their teens. Nikki and the twins lived with Della and her husband since the twins were born. Nikki was not, however, the twins' primary caregiver, and they considered Della their mother. Although Della Frazier worked full-time at Coca-Cola and then the newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, she maintained that she enjoyed raising the twins. Della recalled that they were smart, polite, and respectful as children and excelled in whatever they did. Della made sure that her great-granddaughters had piano and ballet lessons and learned how to play tennis. They performed well at school and were considered gifted. As a young mother, Nikki was not prepared to care for two young children and Della felt that she was not only raising the twins but still raising their mother too. At 25, Nikki met a man and then began dating on and off, developing a close relationship. Thirty years her senior, Robert Head was smitten and soon moved Nikki into his cozy home in the gated Blue Ridge Walk community in Conyers, Georgia, a suburb 30 miles east of Atlanta. He said in an interview that he just had to have her, referring to Nikki as his own personal movie star. 
Not only was he older, but Robert was also absent much of the time. As a long-haul truck driver, Nikki often had the home all to herself. She had an active social life and went out with friends frequently. Nikki became a licensed cosmetologist while the girls continued to live with their great-grandparents. Jazz and Taz were described as sweet, smart little princesses. They were considered respectful, engaging, and even angelic. When Jazz and Taz were 13, they finally go to live with their mother and Richard. Nikki had begun to see familiar traits in her twins that she was uncomfortable with and felt like she was finally ready to be their mother. Della felt that her own daughter, Linda, Nikki's mother, had steadily been persuading her to regain control over her twins' lives. Jazz and Taz were not happy about this for two reasons. First, at their great-grandmother Della's house, the girls did basically whatever they wanted, including dating boys who were years older than them. Not only that, but Della had raised them for the first 13 years of their lives with little to no parental support or intervention on Nikki's part. They just did not view Nikki as a mother, but more like a wild older sister. Della then attempted to extract herself from the situation, she said in an interview, so that the three could bond and get on with their lives. However, she said that Nikki often left the girls unsupervised or stranded and that she got calls and had to go care for them. Jazz and Taz found Nikki's reprimands to be hypocritical since she was trying to forbid them from doing precisely the things they had watched her do their entire lives. Party, stay out all night, disappear from home for days at a time, and date multiple men of varying ages. Nikki knew this and tried to convey to her girls that she wanted better for them. One evening, Nikki awoke to find one of the twins wasn't in the house. Tanya's number one. Yes, ma'am. I just woke up and my daughter is gone at the house. Meaning your daughter was abducted? I don't know, ma'am. I woke up. The door was unlocked and she's gone. I have twin girls. One of them is gone. How old is your daughter? Oh, Lord. Thirteen. Oh, Lord. My worst nightmare. Do you think maybe somebody came and got her? Or do you I think don't know. Somebody came and got her, ma'am. She don't do stuff like this. I don't know. Jazz hadn't been kidnapped or run away. She had snuck out to see her 17-year-old boyfriend. Following that incident, a turbulent period of violence in the home began, and the twins' behavior deteriorated greatly. Although they were accomplished students who often won awards at school, they were also rebellious and disrespectful with no regard for the rules or their mother. Nikki found birth control pills in the girls' bedroom, accusing them of being sexually active. When Jazz told her mother that she had been raped, Nikki did not believe her and next accused her of being promiscuous. This only fueled the volatility in the relationship between Nikki and Jazz specifically. They're staying out all night with boys, smoking pot, and shoplifting. Nikki forbade the twins from dating older boys, and on June 28, 2008, Nikki confiscated the twins' cell phones. The situation escalated to the point that Nikki phoned her co-worker from her locked bedroom, saying the twins jumped her and Jazz had hit her in the head. Nikki ultimately called 911 at her friend's insistence. What? How are they being unruly? Yes, they're being unruly because they're throwing stuff around in the house. You 
hear them talking, ma'am, and they're putting their hands on me. Nobody's you out. You out lying. If they keep on hitting me, then, you know, I might retaliate and have to put my hands on them, you know? And it just be a big mess. So I'm just trying to prevent maybe something bigger happening. When law enforcement arrives, Nikki is visibly frightened and distraught, with scratches on her face and chest. At 14 years old, Jazz and Taz are charged with battery. The twins had been using their closeness to manipulate Nikki. They would seesaw between being her confidant and her enemy, making her unsure whom she could trust and when. Nikki had become so disillusioned with her girl's behavior that she began to feel that they were possessed by a literal demon. She reportedly spoke about wishing she could have an exorcism performed on her teens. In court for the battery charges, Nikki begged the judge for help in controlling her daughters, asking that he court order them to obey the rules. Ultimately, the judge places the twins back in the custody of their great-grandmother, Della Frazier, his attempt to stabilize the turmoil. The judge felt that separating the three could stifle the rapidly escalating situation. It takes two years of counseling sessions before Nikki regains custody. According to Della Frazier, the family saw about six different counselors over that period of time. One stated that the family thrived on chaos, and another said that keeping the kids with Della just replaced one bad situation with another. Although they protested aloud, the judge just assured them that they would be back in court in two weeks to see how it all went. The twins were not happy at this decision and reportedly had outbursts of protestation, screaming out that they did not want to return to their mother's care. The two-week trial period was set and a status hearing was scheduled for January 19th. Multiple witnesses recalled that they overheard Jazz say in court that if she had to live with her mother again, she would kill her. The family was then reunited on January 6, 2010. Nikki was then attending Bodder College studying fashion design. Her teachers recalled that she was so excited to have finally reached this milestone that she had been working towards so diligently. Nikki threw them a welcome home dinner that weekend, where a friend recalled having a long talk with the girls. She said the twins agreed to forget the past and attempt to have a less combative relationship with their mother. Nikki told her friend that she would do anything for her girls. Though things at dinner seemed fine, Nikki called 911 twice during the eight days that the girls were back in her custody. Emotions finally erupted on Wednesday, January 13, 2010, just five days after that welcome home dinner. Authorities were first alerted to a problem around 4 p.m. as the girls arrived home from school. A Rockdale County Sheriff's deputy was in the neighborhood performing service of civil papers when one of the twins ran directly up to his car. The girl claimed that she and her sister had returned home from school to find their mother dead. The crime scene was horrifically bloody, and a struggle had clearly taken place in the living room. Furniture was overturned, and a large red vase lay broken on the carpet in a pool of blood. Bloody drag marks led into the master bedroom. Blood was smeared along the couch and its cushions. The imprint from bloody hair braids could be seen on the walls. 
the body of 34-year-old Nikki Whitehead was found in the master bathtub, submerged in water. Investigators noted that there was blood on the back door and the front door. Bloody footprints led to the next-door neighbor's house, then back. It was evident that Nikki had successfully gotten away, only to have been persuaded back to be killed. The largest pool of blood was found outside the master bedroom door where it appeared that Nikki had been stabbed while lying face down. It would later be determined that she had 14 to 17 stab wounds located at the base of her neck, almost severing her spine. Inside the hall closet, smears of blood are visible on the walls and a stack of towels are noticeably missing from the shelf. Blood-soaked towels were found in the washing machine. The twins were hysterical with terror. Officers then decide to bring them to the station for official statements. Before they leave, an officer climbs up into the ambulance to get a few details from the twins. He sees Jazz repeatedly biting her own arm hard enough to leave marks. She explains that this is sometimes her natural reaction to stress. Once at the station, the video footage shows the twins rocking back and forth, alternately crying and asking for their great-grandmother and mother. They sound like small children lost and afraid. They comfort one another, assurances are made between them that everything will be fine. However, detectives are beginning to look at them differently as they spend more time with them. They are clearly both still wearing their winter gloves, and officers ask them to remove them and inspect each child's hands and arms closely. Once visible, also visible are deep cuts, multiple scrapes, scratches, abrasions, and bites. Photographs are taken for evidence. Investigators asked Jazz how she received those injuries, and she indicated that she and Taz had fought with each other the day before. The girls told investigators that Nikki had two boyfriends, but that they lived with 65-year-old Richard Head. Since he was 30 years older than Nikki and traveled regularly for work, the couple had an arrangement. When he was home, he expected Nikki to be there with him as a couple. But when he was on the road, he more or less let her live her life how she wanted to. The twins then mention a man named Joe Carter, a barber whose shop was adjacent to Nikki's workplace. The twins explained that they had heard their mother and Joe Carter fighting all night. Once phone records were examined, this was not corroborated. Both men are questioned and subsequently cleared as persons of interest. Joe Carter was noticeably upset and shaken when he was told about Nikki's murder, then subsequently passed a polygraph examination. Both men had viable alibis and neither had any blemish on their body that would point toward participation in this violent murder. The girls are separated from one another and questioned individually. At this time, although law enforcement has their suspicions, they must let the girls go and wait to process the mounds of evidence collected. The twins are returned to the custody of Nikki's grandmother, Della Frazier, where they claim they wanted to be all along. Once there, the twins resumed seemingly normal lives, attending high school, hanging out with their friends, and even going to prom. At Nikki's funeral, it was reported that the twins showed up with their boyfriends and still did not appear to be grieving the tragic 
violent, unsolved homicide of their mother. According to Nikki's brother, the twins even giggled at times, and he confronted them and was forcibly removed from the ceremony. They not once approached their mother's casket. Jasmia and Tasmia were arrested on the last day of school, May 21, 2010. Investigators were able to process quite a bit of incriminating evidence against the girls. The most noticeable clue came from the twins themselves. They had reported that they were only about 10 minutes late for school that day and that they had missed the bus and walked. Detectives retrieved security camera footage from a gas station along the route, showing that they hitchhiked with a stranger, arriving at school in time for third period around 10.15 a.m., Forensic technicians were able to successfully match the bite marks on the girls' arms to their mother's dental impressions. Law enforcement determined that when being constrained by a headlock maneuver, Nikki was able to bite her daughter's forearms hard enough to leave an impression deep enough to be seen half a day later. The coroner found another piece of evidence left by Nikki as well, a gruesome clue which helped to lead police directly to her attackers. Between Nikki's teeth was a strand of one of her twins' hair. Identical DNA kept authorities from being able to identify exactly which twin the hair came from, as well as the blood evidence collected from the shards of the vase. Regardless, this evidence is damning. From the twins' bedrooms, bloody shoes tucked back in the closet, along with a clump of hair wrapped in a napkin and stuffed up into the toe of a boot. Apparent attempts to conceal direct evidence linking the twins to the murder of their own mother. A series of spiral notebooks are unearthed in the home shared between the girls. The twins use them to write messages back and forth, loosely plotting their mother's murder ahead of time. This way, they did not have to speak and run the risk of being overheard. Once the girls are picked up, the following exchange takes place in the back of a patrol car as they await transportation to the station. I'm not, I'm not going down for something I did not do. Please find a murder with me. And then get a real person. Thank for real. What the f*** for? They had a coffee and donuts and having a good jolly old time. In custody for over two years and getting ready to go to trial for malice murder and other charges... Defense attorneys approached the state, wanting to tell what they say really occurred that morning. What follows is the girls' explanations of what took place the day they killed their mother. Well, she's wrong. She, she just hallucinates and she sees things that she doesn't, she's not in her right mind. She gets like this. Paranoia. Asking this question, like, why y'all doing this? Why y'all doing it? Why y'all doing this? Saying antagonizing. Yelling. We all yell. Everybody's yelling. We all is mad. I had to pop 
hot from her. This when she had grabbed and I kind of turned like she said, get back. But she didn't keep the knife in her hand. My mom was just, just went in that, that battle with the knife or whatever, so I, I picked up the pot and I hit it with the pot. Can you describe the knife? It's long, pretty long. Huh? We all just trying to fight with this knife that she had. Then Jazz had got the knife from her. She beat me in the chest. I got to tell her, I'm not that big. So she's, when she beat me, she latched on to me. I'm trying to get her off of me because it hurts. I'm trying to punch her, I guess. And um, I think Dad stabbed her. She stabbed her. So I was stunned. I think I picked up a knife and I stabbed her. They were in cuts like they were deep because I, I couldn't bring myself to do that. You had about a hand? Yeah, I think I had at the top. And, and Jazz had her, her feet. Yeah, she was, she was heavy. What did y'all do? They put her in the truck. What's she saying? She, she gave us. She gave us. And I don't know why it's the same thing, going to jail, going to jail. But what are you saying to her? I'm sorry. I'm not, I thought I was sorry. She went under a couple of times and that was it. When that was it, I'm going to use your words, when that was it, what did you and your sister do? I guess we were shocked. We didn't really believe, I guess, what we done, what we did. Um, we cried. We cried for a long time. We just started playing how we were just going to cover it up, I guess. The girls' individual confessions allowed them to accept a plea deal, and they each plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter in 2014. The terms of the plea were 20 years for voluntary manslaughter and five years each for making false statements and possession of a knife during a crime. I just want to say I'm sorry for all this happened, no pain that's caused family and Currently, Jasmiah Whitehead is incarcerated at Arendelle State Prison. Tasmiah Whitehead is incarcerated at Pulaski State Prison. They became eligible for parole in 2017, but should they serve their maximum sentences, they will be eligible for release in May 2040 when they are 46 years old. The murder of Nikki Whitehead has been featured on Snapped, Evil Twins, Dateline, Killer Kids, and Corrupt Crimes. All links are in the show notes. Thank you to the State of Logic podcast for their continued sponsorship and support. And as always, visit ResonateRecordings.com to have your first episode produced for free. Come back soon for another episode of Murderous Miners Killer Kids. And until then, don't be scared. Stay tuned for a few promos from my pod friends.
Are you a fan of true crime? Do you prefer listening to cases that you've never heard before? I'm Nikki T, the host of Strictly Homicide, a true crime podcast covering lesser known cases right out of the natural state. Join us this July as we start our first ever series on cold cases. Did you know there are over 500 missing people in Arkansas? That's only the people that are reported. This July, I'll be covering a handful of cold cases that you may have never heard before. And of course, join us bi-weekly as I cover Arkansas cases that have fallen through the cracks. Find us on all major podcast apps, including Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes, where you can also rate and review us. Hey, 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 everybody. My name's Lisa. And my name is Matt. And we are the hosts of Eye for an Eye podcast. And we are trying to determine whether or not the punishment fits the crime. Was an eye for an eye, Matt? Does the punishment make sense? Was it too lenient, too harsh, too rough, not enough? We're not sure, but we're about to figure it out. And do you think that we have the opportunity to determine now what happened after the fact? Who knows? Take a listen to our podcast, Eye for Eye Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase. 